I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this week's Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tabit. And this week, we're hearing from Tina Brown about Sir Harry Evans's legacy and the future of investigative journalism. This week, I'm here with our Editor-in-Chief, Dominic Ponsford. Hi, Dom. Hi, Charlotte. How are you this week? Very well, thank you. Excellent. So you've done an interesting interview with the widow of Sir Harold Evans and journalist in her own right, Tina Brown. Is that right? Yeah. So Tina Brown, she's a sort of massive journalist, isn't she? Former editor of Vanity Fair, New Yorker, launched Daily Beast. She's written a ton of books, but she's been the custodian of Harry Evans' legacy, really. And she's been doing some really interesting work on that. I don't think Sir Harry really needs any introduction to people that would be listening to this. For anyone who's forgotten, obviously, former Northern Echo, Sunday Times, Times editor, Reuters editor at large up until his death in 2020, wrote a load of really well-respected journalism books. But yeah, literally an absolute legend of the industry. Yeah. And basically, the reason for the interview is two big legacy projects and she's involved in a big journalism conference on the 10th of May, which we go into and also a fellowship to support an early-stage journalist to, to do a project, which we also get into. But just before speaking to her, I thought a little bit about Sir Harry Evans. And though I'm I'm in my 40s, let's put it that way, so, I, so I'm too young, really, to have experienced any of Sir Harry's journalism firsthand. But I do feel he's had a big Im- influence on me and a big impact on me through his books and through his speeches and through, I guess, the people that he's influenced who are still working. And I think one of the things that always stuck with me, and I think it was Dennis Hamilton, a former Sunday Times editor, who said to Sir Harry, the thing about this job is you need to be like a scout. You need to do your good deed for the day. And I've always thought like journalism's a bit like that, isn't it? If you can uh, do something good every day, you go to bed happy, really, don't you? I was just wondering, you're a bit younger than me, Charlotte. Is Sir Harry Evans a big figure to you, or is he fading a bit, do you think, for younger journalists? I would say all, all the things you just said about why he matters to you, I do relate to as well in terms of his shadows is still over or whatever the positive version of a shadow cast over the industry is. I would say still there. And as you say, there's still people who cite him as direct influences. So it's sort of on the second hand bit now. But yeah, I mean, like when I was studying journalism, I was aware of him back then, as you say, again, because of his books and everything. You went to a big memorial event for him last year, didn't you? And there were some quite striking things said then 
about the brilliance that he brought to doing things in the public interest and doing journalism with principles. And his friend Simon Sharma said, the best thing we can do to honour him is to work at creating an army of Harrys unwavering in their passion for truth. That's quite a nice line to highlight, I think, and that continues that idea of continuing his legacy even to the younger generation who wasn't aware of him directly at the time. It was a heck of a thing, that memorial, it really was. And to uh, finish up your life and have a memorial like that where people troop along and not just say how great you were, but say how much you changed the world personally for the better. And many people saying how he personally changed their lives and saved their lives, really. It was quite something. Where do we think investigative journalism is at the moment? I guess at Press Gazette, we're always quite upbeat and we have our British Journalism Awards and I went through that today and party gay, smart motorways, I don't know, you, you name it. I mean, there's a lot of good journalism going on, no doubt about it. But at the same time, it's a little bit wobbly as well, isn't it? Because BuzzFeed News has just closed, which was a big outlet for investigative journalism. And they just said, nah, sorry, um, tech platforms aren't supporting us to do this sort of thing. So we're going to just stick to doing our you know, listicles and ditch all the... Um, important kind of investigative stuff. So what do you think, Charlotte? It feels like it's a bit of a wobble, a bit of a wobbly time. Highlighting BuzzFeed in particular, obviously they needed a big reach to pay for it with advertising and, and the news side of things was obviously never going to get paid for that way. But it does seem that a lot of the amazing investigative journalism that's going on, and you're right, there is loads. A lot of it's at the subscription-based outlets, I would say. The FT there's loads, and this is going back a couple of years already, but like the President's Club, and there's been loads since then. And then the Times more recently with the prepaid meters undercover investigation. Obviously, you mentioned Partygate. That isn't a subscription base, but I know that there are others. Bloomberg often come up in our awards as well. It is notable, I would say, that when there's a solid reader revenue, there's more to spend on that expensive investigative journalism. So we definitely have to make sure we protect that. But the other thing I would highlight is there's a lot of legal concerns at the moment. And I think journalists in the UK are trying very hard not to let that silence them or stop their amazing investigations. But I know that it is a worry at many publishers. So a lot of them are these SLAPs, which stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation, which you understand why they shortened it. And there have been good quotes at conferences where people have said things like, um, there are some cases that have gone to court, but what's more worrying is all the cases that haven't got that far because they've stopped the reporting before it's been published. So I think that's still an ongoing worry. Extremely expensive, isn't it, to write about certain people. So expensive that a lot of journalists would probably um, avoid doing so. We get into that in my interview with Tina he also talks about those sort of commercial pressures and also some of the worries around this idea that it's just the behemoths now, the big boys that can do investigative journalism, but very hard to carry off and sort of local level where the local papers have got very tight budgets nowadays. Listen, I started off by asking Tina Brown about these legacy projects, which are really interesting. And then we then we went on to talk a bit more about investigative journalism in general. I'd say it's worth listening to the end because she's got some very interesting views about Prince Harry and his litigation against the tabloids because she's it's one of her, her areas of interest. And she also has some great advice at the end for any aspiring investigative journalists on the sort of advice that Sir Harry would give them today. 
Hello, Gina Brown, and welcome to the Press Gazette Future Media Explained podcast. Delighted to be here in sunny New York. <laughs> Listen, it's great to have you on. It's great to talk about someone who's weirdly been a big figure in my life, even though I was a bit too young to have ever worked with him or even have read newspapers that he edited, the late Sir Harry Evans. But I, I do feel he's been a big influence on me journalistically and continues to be a big influence. That's great to know. I mean, it's astounding what a long reach he had, maybe because his just career went on for such a long time and he did so many things in his life. But I continually run into people who say that he had an influence in one shape or form. I mean, even the people who just have read all his incredible books about how to be an editor, which he churned out as well as doing all the work that he did. So I'm glad to hear it. It's been, what, nearly two and a half years now since he yes. died. I was at the wonderful memorial service or event last year in London, yeah. which was just astonishing and it really reinvigorated me, you know, just to hear the you speak and all the other great people who spoke of that. His legacy obviously goes on and there's a lot to talk about on that. There's the Sir Harry Evans Fellowship at Durham and then on the 10th of May, it's the Sir Harry Evans Investigative Journalism Summit. So could you just tell us a little bit about how these legacy projects came about and where we are with them? Yes, thank you. When he died in 2020, I got a call from David Thompson, who is the chairman of Thompson Reuters and the grandson of the great Lord Thompson, who owned the Sunday Times during Harry's day. And in the last decade of his life, David Thompson invited Harry to join Reuters as a kind of news maestro, moderator of their great news panels. So Harry had forged this lovely sort of late life relationship with Reuters and with David. And David called me and said, we need to do something for Harry's legacy. And we decided that we were going to create a fund uh, whose mission was to, first of all, uh, fund an annual investigative journalism fellowship with a young, early career talent who would then uh, have some time at Durham, which was Harry's alma mater, and be embedded in the Reuters investigations department to be able to mentor and grow that journalist. And we set up the fellowship and we've already had one incredible fellow. His name is Waylon Cunningham from Texas. And he came in. He's actually spent the last year, he spent time at Durham talking to those professors and getting a tremendous mentorship there and has also been embedded with Reuters and has already had a great byline on that Tesla story about how Tesla was actually filming without their knowledge many of their customers in the car. So we got a great response, actually made a big bang. So he's already doing incredibly well. So there's the fellowship about to post the new one for the next fellow in May, Global Fellow. They can come from all over the world. And secondly, that we would do a big convening in investigative journalism because it's under threat everywhere. And Harry's insight team, of course, did some of the great celebrated exposés. They did, of course, the thalidomide scandal where they really outed the role, the negligent role of the parent company. And it went on for 10 years. Harry never relented in that campaign and eventually got a tremendous amount of compensation for those thalidomide victims who'd been ignored all that time. And of course, the Philby case, the great Philby case, where the Sunny Times Insight team revealed the great cover-up in MI6 about the fact that he'd been spying for the Soviet Union all that time as head of the Soviet department there. So those are just two of the great investigations they did. So I thought in honor of Harry, what me and David thought and how great it would be if we could do a summit all about investigative journalism. And it turns out that the timing is really great. It's happening on May the 10th. It's at the Royal Institute of British Architects. And we have many of the great bylines in this world coming in. We even have 
Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein are coming in, who I consider the rolling stones of investigative journalism at this point with their incredible Watergate work that in the end brought down Richard Nixon. So we have everybody from Woodward and Bernstein to Nick Davis, of course, who broke the phone hacking case in The Guardian, which of course turns out to be extraordinarily topical once again. And we have Catherine Viner, the editor of The Guardian. We have Rula Kalef, the editor of the FT. We have James Harding from Tortoise, as well as the great sort of seasoned veterans of this world. We've also got a lot of the young comers and the very interesting new platforms, things like the investigative platform Forbidden Stories, which was begun by two French journalists. Their motto is, you can kill the journalist, but you can't kill the story. And they they are sort of the non-profit model of funding investigations that essentially complete the work of journalists who were under threat or who died and allowed them to have a safe box where they uploaded all their sources and materials so that if anything happened to them, Forbidden Stories could complete their work. So we have some very interesting new platforms and we also have the great seasoned people. So it's going to be, I think, a very exciting day. Incredible names there. And I've not heard um, Nick Davis speak for a few years. I think he's been quiet. So it'll be very interesting to hear what he makes of everything that's going on. Absolutely. I mean, he's an exact example, like Harry, about how the long tail of your work can go on and can go on and and, and roll so many things into it. Uh, It's just 20 years since that case. And I guess, um, you know, Sir Harry's name and yourself opened a few doors. I bet not many people said no to you when you asked them to come along, did they? It's pretty great. We even have Dean Bacay, who was the editor of the New York Times until just recently. He's coming in. I know it's amazing how fast people said, he was my hero. I'd be so honored to be there. We have some amazing people. He would be so thrilled. My only regret is he's not there, you know, but we, we have this credible Mexican journalist, Annabel Hernandez, who's risked her life so many times to report on the cartels. And you know, the Russians, we have the Russian journalists who just got the BAFTA as part of the Navalny documentary. So we've got these people from all over the world. It, it's incredible. I mean, it makes me quite breathless just looking at that list. I, I wish I had three days, but let's see whether we raise enough money with the fund next time to do it again, but we'd love to. It comes along, doesn't it? At quite an interesting time for the media. You've got Fox News having the biggest libel settlement, maybe payout ever, over what it did around the last election in the U.S., And then we've got BuzzFeed News, which was that kind of attempt to do very uh, prestigious journalism online, which has failed uh, seemingly because the platforms weren't supporting it, or that's what BuzzFeed said. There's a a lot to get into, isn't there? I'm just wondering what you think about some of the themes around investigative journalism that have emerged as you put this conference Well, you've just hit on it, actually, because a big theme of this conference, and indeed I've called one of the major panels, truth costs money, right? And yet the other side of that is if you don't tell the truth, the costs are so much higher than money, so much higher. So this is really a theme of the summit. Two themes. How do we fund investigative journalism and, and, and allow this great work to continue in an era when no, you know, no one wants to, it seems? And secondly... How do we get the attention for it when we do it? So, of course, there's many nonprofit models, and we have quite a lot of that being showcased at the event. But at the same time, the Sunday Times was a cash cow under Harry. You know, it was an enormously successful newspaper. He, I know, would have balked at the idea of being essentially supported by donations. But at the same time, we're back to the situation of either it's a big, massive individual or corporation, or it is non-profit. And of course, the corporations don't want to do it. They always come back to the bottom line. I mean, even though they love to sort of buy media sometimes, and then they make comments about, we want to support this great newspaper. Within a year ever of making those comments, you always find 
they end up hollowing out the newsroom, cutting it all, cutting the costs, firing, you know, everybody. It just has happened again and again. So I'm very cynical about that model, really, because they never stand behind the journalists, really, in the end, very rarely. In that sense, actually, Thompson Reuters is quite unusual. And the New York Times and Jeff Bezos, of course, is now supporting the Washington Post. But what we're going to be left with is these giant behemoths and then local journalism, which is so critical, has really collapsed, essentially, and are on, on life support or scrabbling for non-profit dollars. So these are the great challenges of our time. But unless we confront them and try to figure it out, we're going to end up with a serious, scary, scary social problems, and we already are. And is there um, another issue around um, trust in journalism and, and the reputation of journalism? It strikes me that Sir Harry was someone who did an awful lot to raise the reputation of our trade in the sense that it could be a force for good and that there were heroes in it as well as some villains. I mean, I was speaking at a conference today at the University of the Third Age, which was a, an older crowd. When I asked them whether they trusted uh, journalists, they, they kind of laughed at me, so, which was quite depressing. That is the response you get from the public. So good that you mentioned that. And actually, just made a note of it for my opening remarks, because it's so true that what Harry did do was make people feel that journalists and editors were actually society's Sagalahads, essentially. Whereas today, they've become the villains. Now, that's for multiple reasons. We've seen the assault on journalists, political assaults on journalists. Obviously, the Trump era was the very worst when Trump made journalists, frankly, the villains. He called them the enemy of the people, which was absolutely scary. And of course, there has been, and I think that the phone hacking scandals and all of the stuff that has been revealed, the malfeasance, continues to make people feel that nothing can be trusted that they're reading. And then and then obviously the Facebook phenomenon of, of sort of viral lies being posted everywhere, Twitter, viral lies, etc. The combination of all of that has really destroyed the trust in journalism so that people really don't believe what they read. Unfortunately, it's spread from the misinformation, the disinformation merchants of lies to the real journalists who then suddenly find that their own credibilities, you know, how do they prove that their credibility? So yeah, it's an absolute crisis of trust. In fact, I think that the Edelman Trust Barometer has shown what a collapse of trust that is. We actually, again, we have a panel called Producing Truth in a Post-Truth World. How do you monitor this? We have people like Mariana Spring on that. She's the BBC's correspondent in misinformation. And Madhua Murdia, who is actually the FT's first AI editor, because AI is now representing another onslaught in which whole departments are going to be eliminated in favor of doing stuff with AI. A huge amount of journalism now online has really just been aggregation, as we know, people pulling stuff out of the Times or the Washington Post or the London Times or the Telegraph whatever, and recasting it and with a spin on the top and a headline and they just aggregate. Even that is now going to be going and you're going to have that being done by AI. And of course, where are they pulling the information from? It could be from any place. It could be from sources that are wholly disreputable. And no one's going to know the difference. It'll be well packaged, turned out, and it'll come up in your feed. This has now become a massive sort of frontier of defense, which journalists and editors and documentarians and podcasters and broadcasters, all of whom we have at this summit, are going to be talking about. So I know that, as far as I could tell, right up to the end of his life, Sarah, he was still deeply interested and deeply cared about journalism and about the industry and about the, the big themes that were going on. I mean, Eve used to correspond with Press Gazette a little bit, and he would certainly point out any spelling mistakes or grammatical errors in, in my story, which <laughs> imagine being submitted to by uh, to Harry Evans, really mortified, but he was really <laughs> great to, 
he took such a close interest in things. But what, what did he make of some of the things that were emerging in recent years around the way the industry has changed? He was enraged by the way the media had rolled over on their backs and allowed Google and Facebook to basically steal content and then sell advertising off the back of it. He felt that was a massive mistake that the media strapped on a suicide vest and allowed their content to be free on the grounds of, quote, exposure and traffic. He thought that was absolutely wrong. So he was very keen to see a curbing of looseness in responsibility, essentially. And he felt that journalism was being destroyed by the absolute sort of, well, we're just a platform. We're just going to post these lies and, you know, you can make what you wish of it. We have nothing to do with it. We're not a publishing outfit. We're a platform. And he was very exercised about that fact. That was one of the things that he cared very much about. That's a topic that's, again, very topical this year, isn't it? The regulation of big tech. We've got legislation in the UK at the moment. We'll see whether anything comes of that. And I know the US legislators are looking at it as well. So the trouble is the horse has bolted, and I think the next frontier is going to be AI. So one of the questions is, are we going to roll over again now and let anything happen to our content? Yeah, it's something we've been covering in Press Gazette. I think the feeling was that with that regulation in the first wave of the internet, like you say, we slept walked into something really dangerous, really, in the sense that those platforms now take all the revenue off. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there isn't even any pressure on those platforms to create a giant fund in which journalists can finance what they're doing. Because, I mean, the big beer mods can charge subscriptions, and they do. The New York Times has now become a very profitable uh, thing with its subscriptions, and the successful platforms in England are the ones that can charge subscriptions. But then there are all of these local papers and so forth that can't. I mean, those readers are not going to pay, and they have no way of sustaining Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. We'll find out, obviously, on the 10th of May. What do you think are some of the big future themes around investigative journalism or some of the ways that people who want to do investigative journalism, like proper journalism? The thing about the summit is it is actually, although it has a lot of things to say about the threats against it, what we've found is just it's also a kind of golden age of investigative journalism at the moment because of some of those tools a lot of the time and because of the zeal of the people. It's really amazing to me when we were judging the first Sir Harry Evans Investigative Journalism Fellowship last year, I was stunned. You know, we posted it in various places. We got like over 100 applicants and it was really hard choosing the candidate because the work was so good. And so amazing from all over the world, from India and Eastern Europe, for some reason, had amazing journalists entering this thing. Nigeria, there's some really great investigative journalists in Nigeria. And they were all sending this work that they were doing, frankly, on a wing and a prayer. They were mostly, you know, they're young people working from their own places or some small little nonprofit financed enterprise doing remarkably ambitious work. So that was 
for a start, very exciting. But also there are lots of very inventive things happening. I mean, we've seen what's happened with Bellingcat. This is a, you know, open source model that's just done the most incredible work. You know, the Navalny poisoners, the Skrepel story, the stuff they've done on Syria. I'm a huge admirer of Elliot Higgins and everything they've done at Bellingcat. Tortoise Media is doing remarkable stuff with podcasts, actually. So you actually are seeing some very interesting new things. There's also so much happening in the area of sort of data scraping. We have Bob Trafford from Forensic Architecture, a very, very interesting platform coming in. They use data to sort of reconstruct and get to the bottom of very thorny journalistic questions, such as, did the Israelis kill the Lebanese journalist or not? And they solve that essentially conclusively by manipulation of data and reading of the data and using architectural models, for instance. Very interesting stuff. Things that I know Harry would be so fascinated by because frankly, his thalidomide campaign, which took 10 years, what you can achieve now also in investigative journalism is incredible and impact. When he wanted to put pressure on the distiller company that had continued to manufacture thalidomide, even though they knew how dangerous it was to pregnant mothers, he got readers to have a letter-writing campaign to distillers to put pressure on them, essentially. Today, of course, with Twitter, you could simply have thousands, millions of people doing that, and it would put enormous pressure very quickly. So it was obviously much, much more arduous, essentially, in Harry's day than it is now. So there, there is a big upside as well to many of these digital tools. And I think the open source approach now is really creating extraordinary investigative work. The bigger question is how are you really going to make the impact with it? Because sometimes you can have volume of response without the sort of focus that those mainstream platforms used to bring to something, because you've got to figure out how to sustain attention. And you know, one of the questions that we're going to be asking is how do you sustain outrage at a time of very short attention? I mean, attention, famine, is one of the great enemies of, of journalism, essentially. A big sort of difficult story is not an easy read, essentially. And one of the things I'm very keen at reminding people about is that Henry wasn't just a great investigative editor. He also was such a creative editor and such a kind of commercial editor, actually, that he always found ways to tell the story in new ways to make people interested and excited. And that he did that with headlines and photographs and creativity and, and almost new stunts sometimes to get people to pay attention. And he was remorseless about that. It's not a question of just publishing, just dumping some investigation out there and expecting people to go, oh my gosh, you know, let's give you a prize. That wasn't the point. The point was to make people pay attention. I wonder if another challenge is still re-establishing the primacy of objective truth, as it were, because that's no longer a given, is it? You can say the sky's blue and someone else will say, no, it's not. It's raining, even though you can see the sky's blue very nice. And that seems to be something which investigative journalists come up against now, where people just say, I don't believe that. I know. And the problem with that as well is that the answer is not to do, for instance, what CNN are doing here, saying, oh, we're going to absolutely make it clear that we're the objective truth panel. So we're always going to have two sides of every question. I mean, that's not the way to do it, because as Harry used to say, you know, truth sometimes doesn't lie in the middle. It doesn't necessarily. But you have to be able to prove it and you have to prove it empirically that you got the story right. So it's not simply about, oh, we have a, somebody from Distillers on the program who's going to say that actually they did a great job marketing thalidomide drug. That's not the answer. Right. One of the things that really uh, struck me at Sir Harry's memorial was the fact that the thalidomide survivors who were there, and I remember one of them spoke, I think they said that Harold Evans was 
probably the most important person in their life because... Um, I know, so moving. But they're so terrific, those people. He was a great broadcaster. Wonderful voice he had, too. Harry stayed in touch with the survivors all through his life. That's what's so amazing about his sort of commitment. I used to come down sometimes in our house in, uh, in Manhattan, and there would be Harry having tea with a thalidomide survivor in their 50s, a young woman who's wanted to come now, and now she's in her 50s or even 60s, saying, you changed my life. And he always had time for them and wanted to hear how their lives had turned out afterwards and anything he could do to help them further. I always tell young, young journalists that you know, journalism might not be uh, well-paid or a secure profession, but it might be a job where uh, when you're sat in your rocking chair, you can look back and say, maybe I changed things a little bit and think, uh, you know, I kind of did something with my life. People ultimately want to be proud of what they did achieve. And you're not going to get just doing that with quick hits that get traffic. The great investigation that James Harding did at the Times with the... Uh, Rotherham groomer with Andrew Dixon. I mean, that was a remarkable impact. I mean, there's been some very good work being done just recently too. I mean, obviously the whole Partygate thing, I think that was the mirror, wasn't it? I mean, that was just such important good stuff. And I think journalists remain driven by that. I mean, that's what I love about great investigative journalists is that they're not actually driven by money. They're a whole tribe. We call them a tribe actually in one of the videos because they are a tribe. And they're a tribe of driven, sometimes cussed, sometimes ornery, obsessives who stay with it. And once they get the bit between the teeth, they will not desist. And they need to be backed, of course, by editors of strength. And behind them needs to stand someone financially of strength too, who's going to back it. I mean, one of the things that Harry always spoke about was that Roy Thompson, Lord Thompson at the Sunday Times, you know, the distiller company who they totally decimated with the thalidomide case, he was one of their biggest advertisers at the Sunday Times. To be honest, I can think of very few managements now who'd say, you know what, it's an important thing to do. Don't worry yourself about that. Just do this. Just If this story is true, go for it. People have no desire to stand with that now, even corporations that really could afford it too. They don't want to stand behind it. And I think one of the other things we want to do with the summit is really put sort of steel in the spines, essentially, of, of the people who are in a position to pay for journalism. If it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you one slightly topical question, and then I'm going to come uh -huh. back to one more Sahari question. We'll be going out on the eve of the coronation of King Charles, which is, I think it's fair to say people are fairly nonplussed about that occasion <laughs> in the UK. Is I'm that not, true? I'm so interested to hear that because I'm doing a commentary for CBS, so I'm interested to hear you say that. I'm on the committee to organise a sort of coronation party in my village, which is in, well, you know, it's a nice village, leafy village in East Sussex, and people are very like, We'll have a party, but whatever. They're not really that interested in Charles. I think possibly because of his checkered history and obviously he's not the Queen. So we're in uncharted waters about how people feel about the royalty. But I just wonder what you make of it and what you make as someone who's written books about this and covered it as a journalist yourself. And what you make of Harry's one-man war against the um, UK press, you know, he's suing the, the Mirror, the Sun and the Mail over stuff which happened 20 years ago. To be honest, I actually admire Harry's jihad on this. Yeah. Flashman Harry, Harry the hand grenade, he, he keeps going. One of the problems with hacking the rich and the famous is that they're rich and famous, right? <laughs> I mean, ultimately, Harry's said, you know what? I don't have to settle. I'm not going to. And one of the chapters in my book, The Palace Papers, it's called Snoopers. And I was shocked as I reported that out, actually, because I really hadn't quite understood the torment that, that the young sort of adolescent Harry was put through with the hacking. Because what happened is that he also, as well as being tormented by the media scrutiny, he was in a constant state of like, how do they know? Who's betraying me? Which of my friends can I trust? 
it created such a level of insecurity for him about who he could trust, a real paranoia, because the papers would seem to know about things before they'd hardly even been scheduled, you know, in his life. And he would think, you know, how do they know I'm meeting this girl? How? And his girlfriends were, their travel plans were hacked, their medical records were hacked. So they ruined so much of his life. And on top of that, of course, he looks back on what his mother went through. And of course, he sees the press as having, quote, killed his mother. I think that is a very complicated issue that he will not really confront in that Diana also did have, as I've also explored, issues where she actually did promote herself a lot with the press. And it, it wasn't quite the simple situation that Harry did depict. But what is true is that Diana, too, was absolutely haunted with the paranoia about who was leaking on her all the time. And she, you know, she dispensed with her police protection, which could have saved her life in Paris, mostly because she felt that they were leaking on her. They weren't. So I think when you think about that, you do understand where Harry thinks, I have the funds now. I don't care. I've got nothing to lose. I'm not one of the royal family really anymore. I don't have to care about the ongoing collusion between the press. And so I'm just going to go for it. So that's my view. It's obviously been a long time since Sahari edited a paper in, in the UK, but he um, probably, like you say, through people like James Harding and, and others, you know, his sort of legacy lives on and obviously through this summit and, and long may it do so. What do you think his advice would be to like a young journalist? Maybe somebody who hasn't read his books or know of his reputation, but what do you think his advice would be to a young journalist who wants to do great journalism and, and get up on their charger and, and, and write wrongs? I think he would first of all say, get out from behind your screen and go and really talk to human beings. And I mean, you know, he, he found knocking on doors as a young journalist and having to deliver news sometimes to be almost at times invasive, which pained him. His experience with regular people and their travails, their heartaches, was for him the galvanizing force. It was talking to the thalidomide survivors that kept him going. So it was not about, you know, hiding in his office and letting his journalists. He actually really always connected with human beings on the most kind of intimate levels. And he really believed that was what was the galvanizing force in journalism. So he would say that. And he would also talk about rigor every time. He was to his end of his life, Harry used to make me nuts in the sense that he never wanted to publish anything or post anything or write anything that hadn't had the rigor and he had a great instinct for that. It doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't sound right. Let me just check that. Let me just check that. And it wasn't just about going onto Wikipedia. <laughs> so he would actually go into the original sourcing and check things time and time again. So rigor and personal sourcing. Thanks, Dom. And thanks, Tina, for that interview. Dom, after that, how optimistic, pessimistic, neutral are you feeling about the immediate future of investigative journalism in the UK? I suppose Tina did rather highlight some of the challenges, which maybe I haven't been thinking about so much because we tend to try to focus on the positives a lot, especially with the British Journalism Awards and all the good stuff that's going on there. But she's right, isn't she, to highlight all that. I think the thing that really stuck with me, or one of the things that stuck with me, is the extent to which technology can really supercharge investigative journalism nowadays. So thinking back to that thalidomide investigation which she talks about, and I remember reading Philip Knightley's book where he talks about having kind of a room full of index cards where he assembled all the information to assemble the case against distillers over the marketing of this thalidomide drug. And it took them months and years of hard graft to do that. And there's so much we can do now with computers, with data. It takes seconds, doesn't it? It's just the only thing that's limiting you is your own sort of 
creativity and a bit of application. I'm optimistic. I think there's a lot of great stuff to be done. And um, this conference on the 10th of May, if anyone can get along to it, sounds like an absolute belter. Woodward and Bernstein and Nick Davis. Goodness, you, you name it, and they're there. And anyone who obviously doesn't get along to it, we'll, we'll be there in force. We'll be writing it all up on Press Gazette, won't we, Charlotte? Yeah, I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. Some absolute legends on that lineup. What do you think, Charlotte? Do you feel um, optimistic about the future of investigative journalism? I do feel optimistic, actually. And I think one of the reasons why is that a lot of the people that are doing the award-winning investigations that we highlight or other investigations that are celebrated a lot, there's a lot of young journalists that are doing really great work. And so I feel as they get even more experience, rise up the ranks, I think that it's in good hands. I think we just have to make sure that no laws creep in to make things more difficult. And I think at the end of the day, if you're telling stories that someone wants suppressed, that someone doesn't want told, but you're bringing it to light, then readers are probably going to beat a path to your door, aren't they? Because it's quite hard to do and not that many people are doing it. Yeah, which brings it back to my point about subscriptions. And also, it's just nice to know that you're doing the right thing and getting something out there that needs to be out there, which is a really rewarding thing to do. So you understand why people want to be investigative journalists as well. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening to this week's Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit, Press Gazette editor-in-chief Dominic Ponsford and produced by Adrian Bradley. For more on the conference that we've discussed when it happens, for everything else that we report on Press Gazette, go to pressgazette.co.uk and if you enjoyed the podcast, please hit subscribe and even leave a review. See you next week.